0: That's a pen method.
1: Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 12. That's right, a dirty dozen of Shut Up and Wrestle episodes, and here we are episode 12. We've got a great guest today, David Marquez. going to talk a little bit about him in a minute. First, I want to talk a little bit about uh, none other than The Sheik, right? What else would I be talking about? Because my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, is out in the world. It is available as of April 12th. And uh, so far, the, uh, the feedback and the response has been overwhelmingly positive. I'm very excited. Uh, I, I want to say a little about it. First, I want to mention we had our book release party last week on April 12th at Luna Azzora Italian Restaurant in Fairfield, Connecticut, about 10 minutes from where I live. And it was really an absolute blast, a great time. Uh, we had uh, uh, so many people there that, that showed out. I was really uh, just, uh, I was honored. To have people there to celebrate the release of my book. Keith Elliott Greenberg was there, of course, my old WWE magazine colleague, as well as Anthony Cali, another WWE magazine colleague. We had Lucas Chase, uh, indie wrestler, and his wife, Kayla, were there, and and as well as a, a few people who are listeners and fans of the podcast. So thanks to everyone for coming out and celebrating. I was flattered, I was honored. Um, and I want to talk about the the availability of the book because um, the, there clearly was an underestimation of the level of demand that there would be for this book, which I guess is a good thing. It's a good problem to have because it's sold out in record time, at least the the numbers that were ordered by some of the online outlets. And when I say record time, I mean that um, Amazon, for example, was already sold out before they were even able to fulfill all of the pre-orders that were made. So uh, some of these online outlets like Barnes & Noble and and Amazon, I think they probably just uh, did not order sufficient amounts of books. So I do apologize if there was a delay in your order for some people that pre-ordered and haven't gotten it yet. uh, Believe me when I say that you're not alone Uh, There's a few options I've heard from Amazon, for example, that there's going to be more inventory coming in in the coming weeks. So you may be getting an email saying that your copy will be on its way very soon. So uh, they just have to get more copies from ECW Press. And speaking of ECW Press, you can, if you so choose, you can order copies directly from them online, ECW Press. Of course, the one caveat of that is, uh, you know, if you're shipping to the United States, um, or, or outside of Canada, because ECW Press is a Canadian company, um, there is substantial shipping costs attached to that. So as long as you're okay with that, otherwise you might want to maybe hold off and, and, and put in that Amazon order. But there are more books coming, I promise you. Um, it's just the demand has been off the charts. I guess I've done a, a really good job of helping to promote this book over the past couple of weeks. Everyone will get their copies. It's just going to take a little bit of time, so please hang in there. Um, I want to mention the the latest issue also of Inside the Ropes magazine. That is the UK wrestling magazine that I write for. Issue number 19, which has Stone Cold Steve Austin on the cover. That's the April issue. It's available now if you want to pick it up. I've got an article in there that was very personal to me, very personal to write. Um, it's about Shane McMahon, who I used to work for for a number of years when I was at WWE. And in light of his recent dismissal from the company following the Royal Rumble and all the controversy around that, um, I wrote a piece kind of talking about his legacy and his years uh, kind of growing up in the business and then um, the... the trajectory of his career in WWE and what my dealings were with him during that time leading right up to the present day. So it's a pretty personal account for me. So that's something that I hope you, you check out. You can order copies of that at inside the ropes, magazine.com. But right now we're going to be moving towards this week's conversation now last week's of course was with rob van dam and i've gotten a lot of positive response to that as well and i still am very grateful to rvd for agreeing to write the forward to my book and for agreeing to be on the podcast so if you haven't listened to that one you might want to also check out episode 11 but right now we have my episode 12 interview which is so much fun really and truly because um David Marquez is somebody that uh, is very simpatico with me. We, we think a lot uh, about uh, a lot of the same ways about things and a lot of the same kind of things that are important to us. And so this interview turned into something really, really enjoyable where it's not just wrestling. We're talking about old show business. We're talking about vaudeville. We're talking about classic cartoons and movies and entertainment and how all of that connects to professional wrestling. Uh, It was quite a fun conversation. So if you're looking for something that is a cross between a wrestling podcast and Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, rest in peace, Gilbert. If you are in that category, if that's what you're looking for, then you are in luck this week because that's what we've got here. So I hope you enjoy this. Hope you enjoy this conversation with David Marquez, and I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so I would like to welcome to the podcast right now somebody who, um, if I can paraphrase from the great mean Gene Okerlund, is a close personal longtime friend (laughs) of myself. And I knew he would appreciate that. But uh, he's somebody who, you know, has been he's been on the promotional and production side of pro wrestling for got to be what, about 20 years now in the vicinity of over 20 years um work you know he is the man behind uh, the united wrestling network championship wrestling from hollywood championship wrestling from memphis championship wrestling from everywhere atlanta uh, uh hollywood did i say hollywood all over the place yeah, yeah, um, yeah. he's he's worked for tna he's worked for new japan he's worked for xpw he's worked for um wrestling society x my god um, UPW, and uh, a lot of people also may know him, uh, of course, for his years with the NWA, and especially uh, most recently as the beleaguered interviewer on NWA <laughs> Power, uh, I'm talking about David Marquez. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Dave. <laughs> you know, I, I did my homework there. I actually... Uh, didn't know that you were involved with Wrestling Society X. That was the one that surprised me. I was like, let me, let me snoop around here. And I'm like, oh my God, yes, I remember that very, very well. I wish it had lasted longer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Kevin Clyde Rock kind of hoodwinked me into that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. So going way back from even WCW and the WWF stuff that I did, uh, I think I've worked for just about everybody, uh, in a 32 year period. So um but yeah the, the whole XPW thing, the wrestling society X, all that that stuff that I never thought I was I never even thought I was gonna be in wrestling, which you, you, you may know that too. So yes, uh this this kind of just happened.
1: Yeah, because you were doing I mean I know you worked for Disney, right? And you were you were sure. in news for a while and I know I yeah. think you still do from time to time, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. News, talk show, sports. Uh, I direct and produce MMA and boxing, and uh, uh, with 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 a with someone who should be a WWE legend, Nelson <laughs> Swagler, as my executive producer um, on many of these events. But um, uh, but yeah, uh, I I thought I was going to be an animator. I thought I was going to make cartoons, and um, you know, and uh, you and I are pretty much the same age, so. Uh, about 1988 or 89, I was like, started seeing computers coming in, and I was like, i never seen a computer. i never touched a computer, so <laughs> it totally turned me away from it, and then I saw the making of the Jetsons movie, and Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera are there, like, in their late 70s, maybe early 80s, and they're talking about computers. <laughs> like, they know everything about them, like, they're Steve Jobs or something, and that totally like blew my mind, and I went into video instead. But, uh, but yeah, I, I never thought wrestling was going to be anywhere near my life, the way that it is.
1: <laughs> See, this is a great Venn diagram here, which I have to mention, because this is why Dave and I get along so well. Because it's like wrestling and classic Hollywood studio cartoons. The, the overlap of that Venn diagram, Dave and I are both in there where <laughs> that's one of the topics that I would love to write a book about one day, actually. I mean, I know this isn't an animation podcast, but I would love to write a book about those old school um, Hollywood cartoons. I'm, I'm, I've always been a huge fan of of that stuff.
0: Yeah, you say it's not an animation podcast, but there's something that I've really come to realize, or I've convinced myself that a seven minute Looney Tunes and a seven minute television wrestling match is virtually the same thing. whether you have, you know, you, you the, the bell or the boo, whoop, starts and you have Bugs Bunny sitting there with a banjo or something or just minding his own business as a babyface. and you know dun, 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 he upsets someone. the The heavy comes in, chases him for six and a half minutes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, baby face up, you know, or you have the same thing with the roadrunner cartoon uh and you know i think chuck jones deep down was a wrestling fan because he had a lot of wrestling in his cartoons uh but when you think of wiley coyote and the roadrunner that is nothing but a wrestling match for for seven minutes and i tell people in wrestling class uh and at our our television the same thing i'm like look look at look at the beats that they take and granted those classic hollywood uh uh, movie house cartoons um, are very different than what people have watched in the last 15 or 20 years. So they didn't grow up with that necessarily because they were so censored too. Um, Mm. But, but, but I'm trying to really impart that on younger talents, like go back, find out who Tex Avery is. find out who Chris Freeling is find out who Freddie Moore is find out who these people are, because they, I guarantee you early fifties television and television wrestling was influenced huge by, uh, by, by uh, animation.
1: That's really interesting because, yeah, well, of course, we all know that, you know, Bugs Bunny was a tremendous worker. You know, he's undefeated in his one and only wrestling match against the Crusher, right? I mean,
0: oh, you know, Crusher.
1: right. He could get the job <laughs> done between the ropes. Uh, and I don't know if you if you um, remember this, but I always felt especially because when I was doing research about California wrestling and we could talk about Bugs Bunny here for a second. There was the great this is this is right up my alley. There was the famous uh, ring announcer at the Hollywood Legion Stadium, Dan Toby. You know who I'm talking mm-hmm. about? I do. I do. If you watch old, if people are listening, if you watch old black and white um, wrestling matches from Hollywood Legion Stadium, you'll see this short, stocky, bald guy. He, he looks a little bit like Fred Mertz from I Love Lucy. And I'm. I firmly believe. I can't prove it. That the ring announcer in that cartoon is based on Bunny Hug. Is based on Dan Toby. It's got to be. Well, it, it had to be 100. percent Because those guys too. I mean, I I think that they were out in California, right? The the, Holly, yeah, yeah. the Looney Tunes and the Warner Brothers, yeah. right. Because I know, We're like, right
0: by it too on Sunset. Right, it's where it's where KTLA is now. So uh, I guarantee, in Los
1: Angeles. I guarantee those guys had to be. If they weren't there live, they had to be watching it on TV. Something. Although I think this was this might have even pre. Well, no, because that was right at the height oh. of TV wrestling, right? Yeah. So yeah, that would have yeah. been like
0: 1951, 52, 53. They
1: had to have seen that. Had to. Sure. But, sure. There's a few. I, I always, you know, it's that window right when wrestling got really hot on TV. So it's like right at the end of the 40s into the mid 50s. There's a few of those like there's the Woody Woodpecker one where he's sure. uh, he's watching um, wrestling at home on television and he winds up going down to the arena and, and, and getting involved with it. I mean, it was like a whole craze uh, that they were trying to capitalize on with those cartoons.
0: Yeah, and to fast forward a little bit to the Carousel of Progress at Walt Disney World now that came from the 1964 World's Fair, there's a scene in there where the, where the grandma is in her room and they're talking about, you know, progress and electricity and now they have a television set and an Argentina rocka match is on and she's watching it. So if you go to Walt Disney World um, and sit in the Carousel of Progress, you'll see exactly what we're talking about, the influence wrestling had on broadcasting in the early days that
1: reminds me too uh, this is great We're, this is going to be the cartoon and wrestling hour I love <laughs> it no because I was watching because this is what I do I watch old cartoons I was watching um uh, Mr. Magoo cartoons right from from UPA the, the theatrical mm-hmm. ones again late 40s early 50s and you know Mr. Magoo is supposed to be this really old out of touch crotchety old man right and in one of the cartoons he goes into a television shop or something. I forget the context. And they're trying to sell him on a television, you know, because of course he doesn't own one because he lives in the past. You know, he has this old jalopy from the twenties and they're trying to sell him a a TV. And what he says to the guy to say that, you know, he has no interest in television is he says, Oh, uh, well, I don't, I don't like wrestling, you know? because which says so much because the first thing you think of in the fifties with TV is wrestling. That's what people were
0: watching on TV. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, there's a lot of that. And that's why I, again, I try to go back to pushing classic television, animation slapstick, Jackie Gleason, uh, all those those types to uh, modern wrestlers because they've never seen it like I'll say some things that you'll know if you and I were talking and I throw a joke at at you you'll know if it's Milton Berle you'll know if it's Sid Caesar you'll know if it's Jack Benny like you'll know that these guys at times I think they think I'm a genius by throwing some Groucho Marx thing at them and they're just looking at me like that's great I'm like what? that's from 1920 like what are you, that's to me that's just everyday stuff but that but it also lent itself to animation so well or like a mark twain line or, or or even a jd salinger which i would think everybody would know uh today but i guess that's not true anymore um but just little things like i'll walk around yeah <laughs> you know i'll walk around and, and i i think i said this not that long ago to, to a talent and i was like you know you're just walking around you have a chip on your shoulder you're sick of phony bastards you know and they just look at me like, oh, that's good. Like, yeah, phony bastard. Like, really? You don't know who Colden Hawfield is? Like, come on.
1: <laughs> and uh, Oscar Wilde is a good one, too, for great quotes, great lines, um, just sardonic humor and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really very true. You know, I don't know. This might have been you and, and, and forgive me if I didn't remember, but because this, this is in line with what you're talking about. But I remember somebody posting something on Twitter or maybe Facebook. That was advising, this had to be you, young wrestlers to watch a lot of old Hollywood movies and TV from that kind of 40s, 50s era, even 30s, because, you know, because those movies were made for a broader audience, right? They were made for a general audience. Um, This isn't to say that they weren't great and often nuanced films, but the emotions were much more i don't know what the word i'm looking for uh the way that the the style of acting let's just say before method acting got big with brando and all those guys yeah. and all the mumbling and everything the, the style of acting was very much uh from an emotional point of view uh, much more in your face much more kind of hard on your sleeve uh you know all the kind of stereotypical stuff that people sometimes make fun of in the acting sure. of those movies which i hate when people do that but um Somebody was saying, you know, there's a lot to be learned pro wrestlers who need to have kind of brought this broad uh, uh, portrayal of emotion in order to get everything across that they could learn from watching those movies.
0: Yeah. You know, like all the vaudeville, all the, you know, all the theater, all the projecting and stuff that like you, especially your background in pro wrestling and where you've come from, you know, playing to the top of the arena, being animated and exaggerated. Um, uh, that's all gone uh, to younger people because they don't have that opportunity. They're at some YMCA or boys and girls club or uh, a little rec hall or, or whatever, where there, where there is not, you know, gigantic over the top uh pantomiming and such. And even with television, if you watch a lot of today's wrestling, you'll notice like they're, uh, if they're in a move or hold, uh, they're going to cower away from the camera instead of open up and be broad about it and, and really try to emote uh, that pantomime. And uh, it, yeah, like it's, it's interesting to say, like you and I will look at a, a, a James Cagney performance and be like, Oh, that's fun. You know? Uh, but I think someone today wouldn't even sit through the picture. Like, they are like, Oh, why is this guy talking like this? And why, you know, this is so fake, but it wasn't fake because when you watch newsreels or if you watch early news pieces, uh that's how people talked like that was the vernacular that was the and especially like northeast like when you hear that thick New York uh, 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 (laughs) alphabet soup that comes out of people when they start talking like my grandparents Puerto Rican from the 1920s to New York to Los Angeles like by the time I came around in the in their early 70s it's like I'm listening to all this stuff and it's so fantastic like when I think of a Speedy Gonzalez, I don't think of Mel Blanc, like doing a stereotypical type of a character because I grew up with that sound. <laughs> right. And, you know, whether it's an Italian American or an, uh, even African American, yes, the, the African Americans, they 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 were picked on a little more, of course, but of course. Um, and exaggerated. But I mean, everything else, I think, you know, as well as I do with the people you grew up with in the neighborhoods you were in, that was real. Yes. And when you try to. Yeah, go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say, I mean, like everyone I knew growing up sounded either like Bugs Bunny or Lou Costello. Like, that's not a caricature.
0: That is the way
1: people talk. And I wasn't that far off before I moved to Connecticut 20 years ago. Honestly, I I mean, I I watched like old home movies and stuff and I'm like, oh, my God, I I used to talk like that. Wow. And it's and it's definitely toned down, although since I've been doing this podcast, a lot of uh, listeners from other parts of the country or world like to point out my New York accent to me. And I'm just Mm -hmm. like, well, you should have heard me in 2001. You would probably not even be able to understand what I was saying, (laughs) but, but yeah, I mean like that, that broadness, because especially when, um, when wrestling moved to TV, I really find like that was a big difference maker because that's when the characters became so valuable because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's no longer like, you know, the only way you're watching wrestling really is live. And so if you're all the way in the back, you can't see every little detail. But now that you've got a camera zoomed in right on you, you've got to be very aware of that. And I think that changed wrestling so much where you you start to see if you watch that old 50s wrestling, you really see how aware they are and how histrionic they are like one of my and you were saying vaudeville comedians old school comedians those guys they knew how to sell i mean they were selling that's what they were doing one of my favorite movies i think we've even talked about it is it's a mad 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 world sure which came out you know a little bit later it's in the 60s but it has all those old-time comedians and you watch it and i firmly recommend anybody listening to watch it and you're going there is nobody that does this anymore it's like a lost art the things that Milton Berle are doing and Sid Caesar and even Jonathan Winters and you watch them interplaying with each other Terry Thomas and I mean just Buddy
0: Hackett yeah Buddy Hackett
1: right (laughs) Right. it's facials it's like wrestling it's selling it's it's all that stuff it's timing it's beautiful I think pro wrestling and vaudeville are like sister industries you know it's just one of them died but I mean they really, well, mean, and the
0: other one is, is dying. I so. know. No, I know. And I, and, and it, I it's, it's horrible.
1: I talk to a lot of old timers and stuff and they'll, they'll look at it like it's almost a miracle that it hasn't died yet because it's sort of like roller Derby and vaudeville. And it's like one of these things that feels like it should be a relic of the past. Like it doesn't really kind of fit, but I really do think that what happened in the 80s with Vince and the WWF, I think that was sort of like the code blue on the wrestling industry. Like it gave it this jolt for a while, but it almost feels like, I mean, I think it would have been dead by the end of the 80s if if the WWF hadn't expanded. But, I agree with you. But it feels like it was just a stay of execution, don't you think?
0: Yeah. You know, it was, I think what they did in the WWF then, it was like, they they did the ultimate of everything we're talking about so it was character heavy you know you had these personalities that people might know from magazines or living in a certain area uh coming to quote unquote new york uh at least poughkeepsie uh to to you know to be on television wrestling and it was it was kind of absurd but you still had really good wrestling on those shows in the early days up until probably, I think whether you disagree or agree with me, you know, the early nineties, 91, 92, that's kind of like petered off uh, of like uh, George Scott type booking, you know, where it was more Southern booking. You had Ernie Ladd there, even, even uh, Bill Watts was there. And like those, those types of traditional uh, 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 wrestling wrestlers, wrestling promoters, wrestling bookers, um, uh, having influence, and I still, you know, to this day, people can't tell me that Vince McMahon is not a is not a wrestling fan. I don't think he'd be uh, doing it uh, to this day. And you're more intimate with him than I ever was. So, uh, like, he, is. I, I just, he
1: absolutely is. I can tell. I can tell you, I've had hours long conversations with him. He is a wrestling fan. I, I, I absolutely. think, yeah, it, it's sometimes that is something that I think people get very wrong about him. Actually,
0: yeah. So, like when. Uh, as an example, like I get uh, kind of pigeon held as being like someone called me the king of studio wrestling, <laughs> um, which is fine. I don't, I don't that's, that's that.
1: Jim Barnett. Come on now. That's not.
0: But uh, but uh, but but, you know, I've done so many studio type wrestling shows over the years only out of necessity uh, and resources. Uh, when you look at the WWE programming today, um, I don't know if it's like this still, but a couple of years ago, it, it really was where you saw Raw, which was more of a, a giant presentation. And then you would watch SmackDown prior to it, maybe moving to Fox. And the format of SmackDown is 100% very much a studio show. There he goes. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. Very much a studio show in a studio show format. And the way that, it, that it's formatted, the way that it was shot, it was very, very much shot like a studio. And then when I find out like Michael Hayes is the executive producer virtually of the program, it was like, oh, well, that makes sense. Like the the, the formatting, the interviews, the segments, all that stuff all kind of line up in the in a studio type format. So um, but yeah, all of what we're talking about, past entertainment coming forward, is it's all a hybrid of that. And and I and I really believe that seeing today's entertainment and what's out there now, like we're talking about the mad, mad, mad world. It's like when you look at that and then you look at Cannonball Run. It's Mm -hmm. like it's the same concept, but there's a lot missing, even though the personalities are virtually the same people from that era, that 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 1950s era, you know, Dean Martin, who's hilarious. If you know anything about Dean Martin, he's not a singer, the ultimate straight man, especially to Jerry Lewis, like ultimate Sammy Davis, who is who is a Swiss army knife of everything, you know, and more and more and more and more. And then just the one shot of Sinatra is all you needed. But but it's like the comedy even in Cannonball Run <laughs> was more uh, 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 racially insensitive
1: at <laughs> the time. True. Um,
0: uh, uh, but it was the time. Um, not saying good or bad. It was the time. and uh, But the quality of the entertainment was there. So much so that they made a second one, which was horrible.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I heard they're going to try to remake it. Have you heard that?
0: You know. I have, but I don't know if the people today can pull that off. I really don't know if if a Brad Pitt and, uh, you know, Seth Rogen and those types would be able to pull off that type of comedy.
1: Well, you know, and also there was that movie. I think it was maybe the 90s, that movie Rat Race. Right. Which was a a notorious bomb, but they tried to do Mad Mad World and they had people like Whoopi Goldberg and Rowan Atkinson. And I forget who else was in it. And it just, it just didn't work. So here's the thing. And this ties into wrestling too, is especially from those days um, that my theory about what made those people, those comics and actors and singers and performers so great from back then, it's not, it's not just a nostalgia thing where everybody likes to say, oh, it was better back then. There's a nuts and bolts reason why I believe that those people were smoother their timing was better. They were more natural. They were more multifaceted. They could do it all. And it was because, like wrestlers, they were on the road nonstop from when exactly. they were young people, sometimes even children. They were doing it every night. They were doing it constantly. It was their life. So that when you put a camera in front of them, they didn't even have to think about it. It was like they were like, a mach- like machines. They could just go and I think that's something very different today where the performers are a lot more like artistes and less like craftsmen, you know? So, so they, they aren't as comfortable and natural doing anything at the drop of a dime. You know, there's a famous story, you may have heard it about when Milton Berle was on, was the host of Saturday Night Live. In the 70s, now Milton Berle gets painted as the bad guy of that scenario. If you read about it, you know, Lorne Michaels hated him. He banned him from the show. They won't even air that episode because what Milton Berle was doing was supposedly he was expecting all those people on that show. You know, the, the Belushi's and the Aykroyds and Gilda Radner's. He was thinking like it was the 50s and he was improvising and they couldn't keep up with him. They couldn't improvise. They were angry at him because it was live TV and he wasn't sticking to the script. He was, in rehearsals, he would ask if he could incorporate, you know, dancing and singing and things that he was totally comfortable doing. And they looked at him and said, and I even heard Lorraine Newman say this on a podcast, you know, we're comedians. This is not, like, we're not singers. We're not dancers. And he would say, well, I'm all of those things. And everybody I worked with was all of those things. So when I read the stories of that, I see... Milton Berle is the good guy (laughs) sure I see Lauren Michaels as the bad guy but I mean that's the clash and you know wrestlers were also known for being able to do that because they were constantly on the road
0: yeah and you know and 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 it wasn't uncommon to do a matinee and an evening performance even in wrestling you know in vaudeville they probably did four or five nights or or you know the whole twice uh uh, a matinee being three times on Sunday type of a situation. Uh, it happened, I know, because I did those too with Mario Savaldi. Like we did those type of dates. And That was in the 90s. So, right. um, uh, but you know, when, when you have stage presence, like you're talking about, I try to explain and not lecture to younger people. Like I'll show them the Hollywood Palace or I'll show them, uh, which is a variety show uh, or the Ed Sullivan show or whatever and try to explain to them from a director's point of view, a tele- me television director, so I might have six or seven cameras to do uh, a wrestling show. Uh, but you know, Sullivan had four, three cameras. Hollywood Palace maybe had four. But when you watch those shows outside of even early, even Carson up to the late, the Tonight Show and Letterman up until maybe the late '80s, early '90s, when they had a, a musical performance or a comedian on uh, doing the stand-up, not just the the, the sit-down. Um, they only used one camera. If you really watch that stuff, it's because the, the subject was so good, you didn't have to make up for it with production. So there wasn't a lot of you know, camera takes and, and lighting effects, like especially too, if you go back to watch the original like two or three seasons of American Idol, there was no production, but for like the finals, those, guy, those guys and gals were out there singing, on a dark stage, there was not much production to it. Just a couple of dissolves, just like old uh, 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 Merv Griffith type show (laughs) dissolves and stuff like that. Then like when you got into like season two, three and four, I think that's when you had like the big WWE style uh, lighting effects and camera uh, punches and all that, because the subjects were less interesting and they needed that to enhance them. So just like a singer today, whoever that top big singer is today, you, you know, just name anybody in the last probably 10 or 15 years versus an Ella Fitzgerald, a Louis Armstrong, uh, a Bing Crosby, uh, and even more modern day, the Carpenters to Paul Williams. Like you could, uh, you can just pull any name out of the, the, the sky, Barbara Streisand, that all you needed was one camera to truck in and out and pan back and forth and that old gigantic studio camera, nineteen sixty-seven, and those were gigantic. By the way, it took three people to move them and operate each camera. But it would all be in sync, and they weren't looking at the camera; they were looking at the audience. They were feeding off the audience, just like we try to do in wrestling. So that's missing completely. That that instinct, and I don't think, especially with the resources that we all have with the internet, uh, I don't think younger people use that enough to go back and study. They just see, you know, Randy Orton did this 20 years ago. So uh, I grew up with that. This is what I'm going to do. You know, you never hear people say like today, it's like, uh, you know, Freddie Blassie was my influence and I sharpened my teeth on television because that's not real today. Like people won't believe, won't believe that. Like, are you kidding me? If you're doing it the right way, well, sir, like t- right now, t- and granted he's an older performer, But even in WCW, if 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 Diamond Page went on television with a file and started filing his teeth, I would have totally believed it. Like, you know, uh, because he had that vibe. He had that look. And today everyone looks so young, like nobody looks grizzled necessarily. Everybody looks good. Um, And and even on the indies, and I hate using that term, but. Even uh, on the indies, you see b- before, let's say 15, 20 years ago, we were always complaining about trash bag wrestling and people looking bad and they were out of shape. There's a lot of that. But today I want to say everyone is fit. Everyone is tan. Everyone has a decent haircut. Who are, who's being showcased, of course. Right, I mean, there right. are the exceptions. But, you know, because they know what, what, what scouts are looking for to give them a real job. Now, it took them a long time to figure it out. Right. But they're missing the big part. Cosmetically, they're there. Psychology, uh, uh, any type of knowledge of, of total knowledge. Like you and I, we could sit here and spitball probably any subject, any anything. Even we're, we're even demonstrating if we, that today, right? <laughs> you know, and, and even if it's bullshitting, right? Like if, if if like the internet has killed, Mark Twain could not exist today. You know, no. you could so, nor could Groucho so, Marx. Exactly. Like it's like someone will pull out their phone. And just like, uh, uh, kill, kill, kill the vibe. It's like, that didn't happen. Like, that's about true, you know? It's like, no, let it happen. Tell the white lie, tell the story, be a storyteller. And that's what's missing because everything is extremely black and white today. And, uh, and it sucks. That's the part that makes me dislike pro wrestling is, is that vibe right there. Like when we're putting our sh- my shows together, at least, uh, in, our, in our creative committee, if you want to call it that, is like, I try to explain to them because they, they want to come at, at me with like heels and baby faces. Said, but there is today, I don't think you can do that because you can't trust anyone at all today. Like you can't trust the police. In theory, you can't trust the police. You can't trust religion. You can't trust government. You can't trust your family. Like who you, you can't trust anyone. So who is the bad guy and how do you paint the good guy? And what is a good guy today? Is a good guy, the guy who's skipping on his taxes is, is a good guy, you know, shoving it at people is the good guy, uh uh, 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 a fellow who, who stormed the Capitol. Like it's so mixed up today. And I, and I really think that's, that's, that is what's hurting, storytelling today because you can't really define those two good and evils yes no no
1: that's very true and even I remember like going back to the 90s when I think wrestling was starting to finally tap into that Um, I mean you had ECW and then and then Vince Russo and Vince McMahon picking up on it with all the what's now called the attitude era but that was a reflection of that where you had steve austin which i mean i lived through that and i mean you did and i remember it was very jarring for me because like as a kid i'm gonna admit i liked the good and evil and the black and white and i liked the idea of which we don't have anymore, like the humble baby face you know the relatable everyday guy and you know and the heel is is the more kind of colorful one and so when they started muddying the waters, I remember at the time being on some level, I couldn't even articulate, I was kind of disturbed by it. Like I, I couldn't help but be excited because Austin was so good. And that angle, that whole ongoing thing was phenomenal. But there sure. was something inside me that I remember going like, wow, I think our society is really sick. <laughs> and I think that the, re- the reason this is all so successful I mean, you have a porn star who's a baby face. You got, you know, a pimp who's a baby face. The reason this is all so successful is because of a reflection of that, you know? And then mm-hmm. Angle, 100%. Angle, Kurt Angle came along just a couple of years later, and I was working there at the time. Ooh. And I remember going, I mean, you don't need me to say this, but like 20 years before, this guy would have been the clear cut baby face. Absolutely. Jack would Briscoe. Have, yeah, Jack Bob Briscoe. Backlund, right? He would have been like, yeah. like Bob Backlund when he was... The real Bob Backlund, right? Bobby Bobby Backlund. Bobby Backlund, right. The all-American boy. And um, you just can't do that anymore. Like, even at the time, I remember going like, wow. I mean, this is the only way to present him. Like, you can't put him out there being this character and expect people to get behind him in an unironic way. It's just not going to happen anymore.
0: No. And, and, and it's really killing everything. Like, the term Carney, just as an example, like... It, I hate the fact that, that that term has become negative, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, the people that I came up with, it, granted, I grew up at the Olympic Auditorium. I saw Fred Blassie in person. I saw all that stuff. My family worked there in the concession. So that's what kind of got me into wrestling. Um, I was never that kind of a fan, like a rabid wrestling fan ever once I figured out the show side of it and the character side of it and the cameras and all that stuff, I was like, Oh, this is a show. Okay. I get it. I like this. It's kind of Disneyland. Okay. I get it. Um, And you know, those personalities. uh, uh, So this is like dialect that you'll understand from where you're from. So Tommy and Mario Savaldi. perfect examples of Northeastern Italian, uh, Angelo Savaldi, Italian, Italian, like, but then here I come, a guy from California who grew up in a Puerto Rican household uh, where I don't speak Spanish because uh, they didn't teach us. And there And there's a whole reason behind it. But um, but when I'm talking to them and you get to the Utes and why don't you come and use guys as gonas and all that. And I'm just staring at these guys like this is really cool. But this is just how they talk. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not anything. And like then you look at their history like. You know, I know Angelo Savaldi was and their association with Vince and Vince Sr. And, you know, and we're sitting there on a plate and I'm hearing about Phil Zacco and I'm hearing about Willie Ginsburg and I'm you know, all these people coming out of their mouths. And I'm staring at them. And then I realized, like, oh, Madison Square Garden referee, Tommy Savaldi, Jerry Lewis. Ah! <laughs> you know, it's like I start seeing what this really is and who this is. And if you don't know Tommy Savaldi, uh, great guy. Um, hilarious beyond, just like we talked to Abbott and Costello, like he could have been right in the middle of all that so quick, the insults, like rickles, like so bad, cuts you down, these gigantic teeth, big ears, real skinny, and it, but when you're sitting there across from him, like here's a fun little scenario, we were in Puerto Rico doing TVs, and they stayed at the Four Seasons, and I was at the Coral by the Sea, of course, because that's not where they put me. And, and they would always say, "Mario's so was like, hey kid, meet us at the top. Uh, we'll have the VIP breakfast for you. Okay, <laughs> so, we, so I go upstairs, of course I meet him. And Tommy Sovaldi has eaten everything. Honestly, everything. <laughs> and it's legitimately like dripping out of his mouth. He has eaten everything. And he goes, oh, here. And he handed me like a little tiny, you know, school box, the cereal <laughs> things. And it was like cornflakes, <laughs> like the, the, the worst. Here, here's a shitty box of cornflakes, Dave. <laughs> and he goes, I saved you this. He had great jam, all this stuff. Mario comes in and he's just like, well, are we ready? It's like, what? I just got here. Like, there's not a banana. But I mean, it's such a bit, like, but it was real life. And yes. if I try to like play that, today in something like i would have 90 percent of the crew tell me that we can't do it because whatever whether it's insensitive it's this it's that and i understand and i have empathy for all of that but in storytelling you have to be able to 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 stretch your imagination and and the character um Uh, you know and that and that's another reason why I have difficulties today too with pro wrestlers wanting to use their true name the real name versus a character name because they're that's where you get the well I wouldn't do that you know Mm -hmm. I can't do that because I have to live like this type of a thing right and it's just it's so so difficult to get people to to actually go out there and 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 be a be able to act be able to to push that limit there's a way of doing it you know that 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 isn't offensive and we can do it even in disney when you look at and you have you know you have kids um th- the disney villain is so not the wicked witch so not maleficent so not you know, those those traditional heavies. Even the Wicked Witch of the of the West and the Wizard of Oz today, if they were to really remake that, she wouldn't be that. I'm going to eat your dog and I'm going to, you right. know, s- screw your farm and your family. Like, you know. They humanize that. them,
1: right? They, exactly. they humanize them maybe a little too much. They, they try and exactly. make them the anti-hero, right? Which is interesting when it's done a couple of times, but now it just seems to be the standard go-to approach.
0: 100%. And like, even sidekicks are like not even good sidekicks. They're not like Jiminy cricket sidekicks, or they're not like, you know, uh, uh, uh Bagheera in, in the jungle book, you know, where you have this blue, basically beach surfer bear, <laughs> right. and Right. you know, and then you have the straight laced uh, British butler type. Nope. Stay on your P's and Q's. And we're going to do this. And this is how we're going to do it. And we're going to get this kid back to the village and, No, don't go mess around. Oh, now these monkeys are attacking. You know, it's like, you you know, (laughs) you you can't have that today. Even though when you watch wrestling today, those scenarios are sort of there, but it's just so phony. Like, it's just presented phony because the talents, and it's not the talent's fault. It's what they grew up with. It's, it's, they're just, you know, monkey see, monkey do.
1: Nobody believes in it, Uh, you know, it's it's,
0: and, and especially themselves. Yeah. It's that's the, the it, that's the key. It's just the
1: age of irony, you know, like I would run into it when as a high school teacher and I'm working with teenagers and or even my children now who are of that age too and I'll show them something that's say an old movie or an old piece of entertainment or even old wrestling and it's played in a very earnest way and they can't take it seriously at all because all that stuff has been so thoroughly deconstructed for so long and been made the butt of jokes and been made ironic and been made these comic tropes that when they see it played straight, they absolutely can't take it seriously. Yeah. And it's, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And like, when you think about uh, dictators in, in politics and government, like we know growing up that. And it was obvious. Now it's not obvious it was obvious that like an Adolf Hitler or a Mussolini or somebody like that, uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, like to them, they weren't doing bad. You know, they were not doing horrific things in their mind. They were doing what's right versus what we're in now with, with uh, Vladimir Putin, where you you're totally questioning is it. like, why is this guy doing this? Why is he invading this country? Why, 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 why? And it's more for, uh, well, how can I put it? Uh, 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 status likes, like like Instagram likes. It's like he's doing it for a legacy, not for not for a particular reason. It's more selfish than you know. We're going to make the the ultimate race. This is what it's going to be. We have to exterminate these people because they're going to hurt the race. You know, but I'm not I'm not I'm not a you know I'm not I'm not for that at all. I'm just saying as a as as a personality. You know, as a being and all these years later, we see that, and especially like when you watch using Hitler, like when you see what Charlie Chaplin did to Hitler mm. and in his his portrayal of Adolf Hitler, like it's it it was so amplified that this guy was like he thought he was doing exactly the right thing. And in wrestling back in the day, Roddy Piper was all over the place, but you knew where he stood. Like you knew the reasons why he was doing it. Um and and more and more and 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 coming in to the business, the 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 real formative years of mine in the '90s, uh, the early '90s was with Gordon Soley and Harley Race. So I had Southern, Midwestern, internationally traveled people, you know, in their own way, right? <laughs> Explaining to me how you know things are. So from Japan to Puerto Rico, and then the stigma of Puerto Rico because of the incidents in Puerto Rico you know, and friendships. And I will never go there again. And the only reason I went to New York was because they virtually held a gun to my head and ran shows opposite me in St. Louis. And, you know, and you're learning all this stuff. Um, if you can't beat them, join them uh, right. type of mentality. And,
1: and that's the Harley. That was the Harley race. That's story.
0: Harley, of race. course. Yeah. Absolutely. And then on the other end, I have Gordon Soli telling me how much he dislikes Vince McMahon only because he wanted him to wear a tuxedo and be <laughs> Howard Cosell. That's the only reason why he never worked there.
1: Because he, (laughs) he, well, he tried to get Cosell. You know that, right? The famous story. Vince tried to get, the story was that, and I think Howard Cosell corroborated this, that Vince McMahon cold called Howard Cosell at home, got his phone number, pitched him, because I think with the whole WrestleMania thing, like he wanted him to be the new voice of the WWF, and Howard Cosell just laughed him off the phone, and Vince just became... Furious, you know, expletive-ridden sure. on the phone, and and I didn't know about the Gordon Soli connection that he kind of wanted yeah. him. So, so he actually wanted Soli. I always thought, oh that he, yeah, he, he no, had no he interest.
0: Did. No, he did. According yeah. to now, according to Soli. now I'm sure right. Vince's story would be so much different now, and there's no way to put it together. <laughs> right? Um, but 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 Gordon told me like this was prior to the Black Sunday stuff. um So they did a, sh- a special together. And I don't know if you've ever seen the whole thing. I've, I've only seen, seen that clip.
1: I've seen screen grabs from it. It's really surreal it's to that, wrap your head around the, them.
0: It's that like 1979 HBO yeah. uh, a special. It's Vince and Gordon. He's like, oh, the man with the golden tones, you know, whatever, when he's talking about Gordon. Um, I think they were in Florida, too, when they shot that. But uh, I've never seen the whole show. I've been trying to find that for decades. and I can't HBO find
1: should put it out. I mean, there'd be interest. They
0: should. Absolutely. But, but I don't even know if they know they have it. It's their show. Um, What I'm getting at here is that from what Gordon told me was Vince, as the expansion was starting and the co-sale thing, and he did corroborate it by the way, I think it's in his book. He talks about it and he had a radio show on WABC where I think it's recorded too. He talks about this uh, Vince co-sale stuff, but um, Gordon he said, you know, he he whined me. He flew me up to New York, the limousine, the whole stories you've heard from everybody at dinner. Linda was there, whatever. Right. And all he wanted Gordon to do was wear a tuxedo, quote, like Howard Cosell. And and Gordon was like, I'm not Howard Cosell. Like, why would I? I'm Gordon Sully. I wear I wear a carnation. You know, I don't I don't <laughs> I don't wear I don't do that. And right. and that's why he refused the employment. Um, and Harley, on the other hand, I'm sure you've heard the story about uh, Starcade and Vince basically telling Harley to bring the NWA world title to New York and screw yes. over flair. Uh, I've heard the story from several people, but Harley directly uh, of how it happens in the Harley's is way animated. Uh, I don't know if I believe Linda jumped on his back and pulled his hair in a parking lot. I don't know if I believe that, <laughs> but that's what Harley has t- t- said many times. Um, but uh, in the bathroom, he says they in the restaurant in New York, you know, he went up. Vince came into the bathroom and tells Harley, you know, so are we going to do this? And he goes, in that Harley voice, no, well, why not? See what I'm doing right now. You know, he's washing his hands. He goes, but he goes, I have to get up and look at myself in the mirror tomorrow. I cannot do that too. So that part I do believe, um, because I know Harley, uh, uh, but uh, but yeah, it was like the way that I came in with these people and the angles and the stuff they would write and how they would say it, we 1 billion percent can't say that. today. I mean, just the, and I'm sure the people listen, well, maybe your audience is different and they're not going to flare up, but uh, like the Jim Cornette NWA uh, line yeah. that, yeah. The, the, the controversy from a couple of years ago, like I think you and I understand the core of that punchline. Um, Cause we grew up with it. If anybody right. of our age was on television, we were bombarded with feed Africa, feed, you know, uh, this, this Ethiopia is a famine place. We saw children uh, like disappearing before our eyes on television because they were malnourished. So the line that Jimmy said to any of us, that's why it aired. It didn't bother us. And, you know, because it was just a line. Uh, but the modern public, twisted it and turned it into their own narrative and said it was racist, uh, right. only because it had to do with Africa, which people think about being, uh, a dark black country, uh, pigment, skin pigment, um, and, and fried chicken, which is nothing but an American Southern stereotype. Um, right. even though Jim Cornette is from Louisville, Kentucky, like you don't think his, he grew up with fried chicken, like it's on the restaurants, like, <laughs> um, but, but at any rate, that little tiny thing was flared up, but we all understood the joke. He, you know, Trevor Murdoch is a double tough guy because he can do this. Today, you can't say that, and it's not right. accepted, um, which, which is, I think, hard on the talent too because as much as they might want to, to uh, uh, stretch things, they don't know where they can because their personal lives and their wrestling lives are so intertwined that they can't do something without feeling like they're going to get in trouble for doing it. But if it was in a movie, right? If they are playing a character in a movie and they did that exact same thing, it's fine.
1: Right. That's you know? the weird thing about wrestling is people can't seem to separate it the way they do with other forms of entertainment. I think in part though, wrestling is a little bit to blame because wrestling is the only industry where, and I, they still do this, even in the post kayfabe era, where they really work hard to try to make you doubt what's real and what isn't real, and they try to get you to believe things. When you're watching a movie or a TV show, that's the one big difference is, is there's, there's no one in that movie that's trying to make you think that you're watching a documentary. So sometimes wrestling suffers because of that practice because people make the mistake of mixing it up with real life. You know, like I've said... Yeah. I've said it on Twitter a bunch of times, but it's a weird time we're in where you can be a heel unless the line you cross as a heel is you can't actually, (laughs) you can't actually make people angry. Well, you know what I mean? Like if you're a heel and you actually make people angry, not in an ironic way, but they're really mad. Then you've gone too far. Whereas you know, in the old days, that was the whole—that was your job, not to make them angry in a way of like, "Oh, this guy is really good at making me angry," but to actually piss you off. And mm-hmm. if if a heel does that, you've gone too far, and you've got to apologize.
0: Yeah, and in the same thing goes with the stand-up comedy. We we saw that recently with Dave Chappelle and many many people over the years, recent years. But like when you look back at a Richard Pryor or a George Carlin or. Or or any of those Lenny Bruce's, you have those those earlier comedians who can say certain things. Like today, you could not lift up. Oh, geez. Today, you could not lift up uh, a a short African American person and and say, you know, I want to thank the NAACP for this award. You can't say that today. Um, uh, But it was very much acceptable in the fifties, and everyone understood what that meant, and you know, and that was actually a positive situation you know he's the he's the black oscar you know <laughs> this is this is our pal we can do this um uh but but yeah today you cannot do any of that stuff and unfortunately uh i feel that it's it's just because of lack of education and and being an adult too you know uh, there's not many grown-ups
1: yeah in that no,
0: in that true. sense of responsibility Um, I'm not shitting on people. It's just, it's just facts. Like you just see it day to day. And especially like during uh, the Trump administration and how that separated so many people, just it was so polarizing, whether for or against or whatever. It was like when I was watching all of that unfold and I got a part of it a little bit, but I didn't get, it didn't overwhelm my life. uh, Like, like a lot of people, it's just, though I was looking at this guy from a character standpoint because all he virtually is is an actor is a game show host like he is <laughs> he was a, he was a professional uh, talk show guest um yeah uh, that you know you're looking at him and then you're looking at all the other president types presidential types um uh, politics aside just looking at him as an individual is like how is is he a heel? Is he a baby face? What is he doing? What is he trying to do? What's the reaction he's getting? Why is he trying to get this reaction? Is he really trying to divide the country? Is he Andrew Jackson? Like, what, what is this guy? <laughs> you know, who, yes. who is he? Um, and, I, and today, I, I we still don't know who he is, like no really one. is.
1: And there were, I, I know, you probably remember at the time, there were these think pieces that came out where people were talking about the influence that pro wrestling had had on him that he was absolutely that he was playing almost like a trying to be a wrestling heel but a wrestling heel that he knew would get over with a certain segment that likes that kind of heel you know he was like superstar Billy graham or something or or harati piper you know but but actually and and piper makes me think too because you're talking about the things you just can't say it's like with, with sometimes with old wrestling promos um it'll blow me away you know piper was one of the best that there ever was but he did a lot of race baiting in his promos it was very common and but he did it and i remember even talking to him about it you know he didn't hold those views he really did not no. No. But but he did it because he knew how much heat it would get him. You know, and today that would be considered irresponsible. But
0: he did it. And Don Morocco too. Like I, people forget about Don Morocco, but Don Morocco had amazing promos and stuff he said. Yes. Holy, yes. holy cow. <laughs> you know. And if you know, we we all know the David Schultz hulk hogan promo from the awa you know like you couldn't say that stuff today at all <laughs> right the
1: san francisco thing you're the talking about right yeah, yeah there was that and oh. you know and i i remember i saw it's you know there's always lines that can be crossed i think even in those days where you look back and you go even in the context of the time i can't justify it like i have seen um stuff from oh i'm trying to think where this was i think it might have been the fuller organization in the southeast mm-hmm. they had a million names i can't even i don't know if it was gulf coast or southeast South championship Eastern, yeah southeastern right one of those they had and i saw this on a bootleg i've never seen it anywhere else i, I just don't think anybody was recording this stuff but they had a baby face who was supposed to be uh, a cousin of Dusty Rhodes, right? So he was a Dusty Rhodes knockoff. And I forget his, I've never seen the guy anywhere else. Someone listening to this is going to know what I'm talking about, I guess. But he he used a name which was like a play on Dusty Rhodes. It was like something else, Rhodes, you know? And the thing was, he's he's on, he's cutting a promo, totally racist promo. And he, because the, the guy he's wrestling, he's feuding with is black. And he's saying he's putting him down in this really rate. He's calling him boy and things like that. Mm-hmm. But the thing about it is, though, he's the baby face. <laughs> now, yeah. that that I can't justify because they no. knew they had they had their audience there in the panhandle and whoever else yeah. that was going to look at a guy like that, putting down a black guy and calling him boy. And, and they were going to get like a vicarious thrill and cheer for this guy. That is the seedy side of it that I can't get with. But but a heel saying stuff like that,
0: I'm totally on board. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had that same situation here with my organization when Percy Pringle joined us. So I had him with uh, Eli Drake or uh, LA Knight now on NXT and Brian Cage. And I put, uh, 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 well, his name was Sean Ricker then. So <laughs> Sean, Sean Ricker and Percy Pringle. Um, we're in a feud with uh, Willie Mack on our show and the stuff that Percy would say, I would sit there and this was 10 years ago, 12 years ago, you know, and I would like, I was like, man, we have to reshoot that. I don't, we can't say, it. I know what you're saying. I, I know these people don't know exactly what you're saying, but I know what you're saying and we can't say all of that. Uh, so we'd go out there and he'd say it a different way. Uh, we had a matchmaker on air, uh, John Ian, who's the late Johnny Ian, who's now passed. Uh, but he would call him buckwheat on TV. Like mm-hmm. today, like this is like, and I'd look at him like, don't call, him, don't call him buckwheat. Like, don't that's don't. Um, and and anyway, and that's you know Paul Bearer, who has been on major television uh, for many 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 decades. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and I you know who I thought did it well, uh, and I wish he were still around because we kind of need him. Uh, is Gary Hart? Like oh yes, yeah. I always thought Gary Hart's delivery and the words he, his vocabulary, was always right on. Even the questionable stuff, it was so smart that it would just hit you. Uh, Heenan, on the other hand, like unfortunately, if Bobby Heenan were still around, he would not. We would not have a Bobby Heenan. Like no. he, he he wouldn't he wouldn't exist today. Like he'd yeah. be in the retirement home. <laughs> well,
1: Bobby was very much from that. I mean, even though he was a younger guy, obviously, but he was very much from that Borscht Belt, Vegas lounge yeah. comedian tradition of, I mean, he 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 lifted lines. I mean, like um, a friend in need is a pest, which yes. everybody now associates with Bobby Heen. And every time I hear it, I think of Joey Lewis. Joey but, Lewis, yeah. But, but Bobby knew that and that's where he got it from, you know? And But yeah, I mean, like <laughs> the things... That he would say about you know Native American wrestlers well, and female women, wrestlers,
0: I mean, right? Uh,
1: just uh, you know, you could not, you could not do it. But uh, like
0: you, you, can't say broad and twits today. I got in trouble for calling female wrestlers in a commercial girls. I said and the girls, and I was attacked. Wow. We're women, we're not girls. Like oh well,
1: but the male wrestlers are the boys, aren't they?
0: I mean, <laughs> abso- absolutely. I mean, it, it was a fight. I wasn't worth getting no, into but no but uh but at any rate yeah so there's so much i believe that you can take from older entertainment you know mix it up bring it back out i think mjf is doing a fine job with that today and yes. how he's saying it the words that he's using um and uh there, there's a couple of others uh, uh la night i think he's a he's a great performer he, i was he gonna bring well. him up yeah, I was going to bring mm-hmm. him up, and and I I don't my because I know
1: that you worked with him, and and he was one of your guys early in his career. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much credit you deserve for how great he is, but maybe you do. But he is phenomenal, especially on the mic. He is one of the best right now. I would say.
0: Yeah. Well, in the beginning, uh, I was very. I mean, he started with me either in '09 or '10, right when the TV was uh, Hollywood show was starting, um, uh, and he was lucky to have. Very fortunate, and he'll tell you this. I mean, uh, Percy Pringle, uh, Adam Pierce. Adam Pierce was the Booker, and he wrote most of that stuff. Um, myself, uh, and then we always had other. I don't want to call them legends, but like, or even old timers, but but people who were influential coming in and out. Like when I shot John Cena's very first promo at UPW, and I. I back then I get I couldn't tell you that he was going to be John Cena that we have today uh you know he was not that good he he physically aesthetically looked amazing but outside of that like I didn't have any faith in his delivery he had no idea he was a bodybuilder like he didn't right he, he he didn't have that and then once I met his dad I was like whoa well, <laughs> why weren't you the guy who got got a contract because you, you're all that um Uh, but, uh, but at any rate, I, I, I think he, he would give me a little bit of credit uh, for helping him out. The first thing I did was change his name. He got here. He was, uh, what was his name? It was something dicks. Something dick was his name. And I was like, we're not doing that. What's your real name? And he goes, Sean Ricker. I was like, that's a great name. (laughs) Why aren't you Sean Ricker? Right. (laughs) You know, and he's from, he's from Baltimore. Who's from Baltimore? I was like, you're from Baltimore. Like let's let's use this because in my head I'm thinking like John Waters and uh, uh, right. uh you know Barry Levinson like I see these the the it's always quirky people that come out of Baltimore <laughs> um, uh, I mean Nelson Swagler he's from Baltimore <laughs> right <laughs> um, you know so it's like you get these personalities and that was in my head and then we heard him talk and then you know the Huns and the and, and all of his catchphrases, he gave, don't get lost in the sauce, uh, daddy's uh, mashed potatoes, like all, he had all of that stuff going, and when we actually gave him the mic, and and then when Percy passed, and he had to speak for himself, like, I saw the influences of Ric Flair, I saw the influences of The Rock, like, I saw all of those really come out of LA Night, and then I just gave him the mic and said, go talk, like, and then he has hang time, I don't know if you've ever seen his his matches, like when he yes. goes up to do something, it's like, where did gravity go? Like, he's just like, how does he do that?
1: <laughs> even um, even Stone Cold, I see a little bit of Stone Cold in him, in his yeah. promos. Uh, there's a certain touch of it, but it's not, he, he never feels like he's copying anybody. Somebody said on Twitter, and I couldn't agree more, and they meant it as a compliment, that every time LA Knight comes out to do a promo, it's like he thinks it's the 1990s. But they meant that in a good way, not that he's lost in the past, but that he has cut through all the BS of wrestling promos in today's wrestling. And he's trying to do what really works like a real wrestling promo. Like you watch him cut a promo and you go, that is a wrestling promo
0: right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and speaking to Adam Pierce, um, I, I know people are watching him on television now and I don't know if they realize he's the star of that show, but he's the star of that show. Uh, and for a reason, um, hey, he kind of is, you're right. Yeah, he is. He's Vince. Yeah. He's um, the new Vince on TV as he a character. Is, yeah. He is. He is. Um, but if you go back and watch, not just because I'm involved, but I think if there's any wrestler in my career or my legacy or my, whatever you want to call it history, that I'm gonna probably be most associated with, it's gonna be Adam Pierce. So um, I was his Gene Okerlund to, you know, Hulk Hogan or Gordon Soly to Ric Flair for many, many, many years on television. And, you know, and he was always the ultimate heel. And the stuff that Adam said on um, just drop drop of a hat, the stuff that would come out of Adam's mouth was just always amazing. And it's wrestling too. Like it's unfortunate people who are watching, excuse me, WWE today they don't know what kind of a true in-ring talent that Adam is not was is just like, you know uh, you and I both know this, like if Terry Taylor really wanted to go out there and do a match right now at, you know, late sixties, quite possibly early seventies, don't kill me TT if I'm off by a year or two, but uh, uh, like Terry could still go. That's why he's at the performance center at that age. And he's in great shape still. And, and he, and I keep hearing that he's so, rough on everybody but i know he's not rough he's just doing what he what he does but adam like if there's anyone that i can really just put over it's adam pierce that guy he and i together traveling the world we made him nwa world champion five times for a reason during a time that you know didn't have a big spotlight on us we had television it was regional television uh but you know he 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 really carried that title the right way which luckily i believe and And I will say this you know i'm i'm a pretty humble person for the most part, but me being associated with n w a power and helping you know lightning one uh purchase the the assets um it really i i realized how many of of the modern fan base came from my versions of the n w a um and my storylines and this and that, and i kind of tied it all together that i was the hub to that that was kind of neat for those you know, two or three years, we did that, uh, with NWA power and coming out of championship wrestling from Hollywood prior to the Nick Aldis stuff with, uh, with, with Tim Storm and telling that story. And the funny part, Tim Storm working for me in Missouri and I had his baby pictures in his very first match. (laughs) So, so, you know, that was real fun, but I want to give all the credit to, to, to Adam Pierce being the world champion and who we put him in there with Brent Albright or, whether it was a uh, blue demon or, or whoever the case may be, especially coming out of the TNA stuff where it was so, so mismanaged and, yeah. and, and, and confusing to people. You know, you always get the NWA was dead stuff, but uh, by the time the TNA stuff happened and then uh, Brian Danielson breaking his eyeball <laughs> to, having <laughs> yeah. to, to having, to having at a necessity, who do we put this on? And then it was Adam Pierce, you know? So I'm I'm really happy that 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 Adams where he's at today because he really deserves it. And that was an exciting time for the
1: NWA. I remember following it then, and too, because the continuity with Power was also it's not just you, but that Dave Lagana was there too. Because I Absolutely. remember. You yeah. guys, you know, back when I guess I'm like around 2010ish, you know, when you were yeah. doing it out there in California and Blue Demon was the champion, and I mean,
0: yeah,
1: that was great stuff. And you know, there's a few people over the history of the NWA that deserve credit for helping to keep it alive when it seemed like it was going to die. I mean, Dennis Carluzzo comes to mind,
0: sure. Sure. and
1: you guys are on that list of people that, and obviously Billy Corgan now, but I mean, people that have. Been instrumental in making sure that that brand which now is goes goes back I mean goes back even before 1948 because there was 1901 right there was the and and there was the people forget when the when the NWA people forget no one's alive anymore but I mean when the National (laughs) Wrestling Alliance was founded in 1948 the reason they used those letters NWA was because there already was an NWA. There was the National Wrestling Association, Association. Yeah. that went back yeah. to the twenties. That was affiliated with the National Boxing Association, and like classic wrestling promoters, right? They were trying to confuse the marketplace and create instant legitimacy by linking up their title somehow with the end with the National Wrestling Association World Title, which they actually did physically with when Thez. You know, became recognized as the champion. He was the unified champion. But I mean, yeah, and they would always say this title goes back to 1901 or 1905 with Thez and ha- with uh, Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt. So I mean, that's a serious legacy and lineage and and you know, you're on that list of people that have helped to keep it alive. That's something to be proud of.
0: I am. You know, 24 years was a long time to be associated with that. People still today. You know, I know forever I'm going to be associated with it, which is fine. Um, There's a lot of trials, tribulations, tears, happiness. You know, I took the NWA world title to be defended in China. You know, that was that was a big deal to me. Right. And that was to Harley, too, because when we were in business together, he'd always, you know, look at me. He goes, "I, I took the I took the belt around the world eight times over. The only places I never performed was. Uh, Russia and red China, but I'd really love to do that one day, you know? And, uh, and so when I had the opportunity to do that, the first thing I did was, you know, I called Lagana and I said, I want to take the world title to China and we're going to do a broadcast from there. And he goes, well, how are you going to do that? I I don't know, figure it out. And it took me three years to get the deal done, but I am the only producer promoter to actually take a broadcast out of China. And, um, uh, Colt Cabana was the opponent to Nick Aldis as champion, and the funny part is Cabana documented the whole experience with his uh, Art of Wrestling podcast. And I almost did not leave China with the tapes; the, wow. the government was holding them. And it was, and you know, it's so stereotypical pro wrestling story, but it was 100 percent true. And uh, Cabana has it all on tape: me arguing with with government uh, television people uh, with the truck. They wouldn't give me the tapes.
1: That's phenomenal. I mean, that's like uh, it, it's almost reminiscent of not to that degree, but like the stuff that happened in North Korea with the WCW in exactly. New Japan, right? I mean, not yeah. quite as repressive, no. but but close. No, but
0: yeah, yeah, wow. no. And it was and that China experience was scary. We had guards at every entrance in the arena. We were in a I think a a racquetball arena, an Olympic racquetball arena, uh, where we did the show, and they had like the the observation stand, like you see in Soviet type uh setup where it was stepped on one side like rocky Um, four right yeah (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. yes exactly um and uh but at every entrance uh into into and out of the arena inside you can see them on camera too and some angles um we had soldiers holding machine guns like i guess that's everyday stuff there i don't know but it it was uh but it was scary like that that type of situation, you know, cause I'm there just doing the show and we're doing this, and we're doing that and all this stuff. But, but then you, you have another culture and mindset and you have to play by the rules. And I legitimately almost fist fought <laughs> this, this, this TV guy <laughs> to get the tapes. And I remember my arm was cocked and Eric Watts who was on our program. Uh, he grabbed my arm. Cause I was, leg- and I don't hit people. I'm not violent that way, but I was so mad. That I was running across a court like this, and you could hear like the slow motion. No, <laughs>
1: <laughs> you, you may. I was going to say we may not be having that conversation right. This conversation yeah. right now, if you yeah. if you're connected, amazing. You
0: can't pick this stuff up.
1: <laughs> no, you can't. And, and Dave, I have to say, I'm going to just say this, and I mean it when I say this. But when I envisioned doing this podcast and was planning and hoping to do it. What we've just done now for the past hour is exactly the, the, the best case scenario of the kind of conversations that I was hoping to have and have been having, but that I was hoping to have with people on this show. So, I mean, like, but you're a busy guy. If you, I would make you my co host. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go <laughs> that far if you weren't so damn busy, because I could just do a podcast every week talking to you. This has been phenomenal. Thank you. Thank you very much. I had a great time. Thank you, Dave. We'll have to do it again for sure. Sure. Let me know. Well, there you have it, folks. My conversation with David Marquez. And I was not lying, right? Was I not lying? Now, when you listened to today's wrestling podcast, I'm sure that uh, the last thing you expected to hear about were Bugs Bunny. It's a mad, 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 mad world and Milton Berle. But here we are. And that's what happens really when you put David Marquez and myself in the same room at the same time, even if it is just a virtual room. So thank you, Dave, for, for giving me so much fun. And we, we definitely have to do that again, because I mean, we didn't even get to talk about, you know, Abbott and Costello. So, you know, there's gotta be a part two. So we'll do that. In the meantime, I want to mention that next week's guest is going to be a wrestling writer that uh, whose work I've, followed and and been reading for a very long time he currently works for cbssports.com I'm sure you may know him and if you read wrestling stuff online you definitely know him it's Denny Burkholder he's going to be my guest next week uh, on shut up and wrestle and we have some other good ones coming up Um, I'm going to have the author of the Dynamite and Davey book about the British Bulldogs, Mr. Stephen Bell. He's going to be coming on and we had a good conversation, not just about the Bulldogs, but about uh, really the history of British wrestling. It was really interesting. So that's coming up. I'm also going to be talking to Brian Greenberg, who was the cinematographer of the original I Like to Hurt People. And he is now the man behind the sequel that is in the works believe it or not, to I like to hurt people. And he was also gracious enough to allow permission to use that song as the theme song for this podcast. So he'll be coming on soon. So keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle. And there's a variety of ways that you can listen. So there's our website, suawpod.com. Or you can go to Spotify, you can go to Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podbean. Uh, Basically, wherever you find your great podcasts, you can find this podcast as well. So uh, check it out. In the meantime, we've also got uh, the magazines, magazines that I write for Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the granddaddy of all wrestling magazines. And I'm a contributor and you can pick up your copies at GetPWI.com as well as Inside the Ropes Magazine. Just as I mentioned at the top of the program, you can find that at Inside the Ropes magazine.com. And if you're looking for me, of course, I can be found on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. Also on Facebook, If you look up Pro Wrestling FAQ, you will find my uh, Facebook group where I post a lot of wrestling content. And on any of those platforms, you will also find the link to my uh, author webpage. So that's another good way to keep track of me. So as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in. And in honor of David Marquez, I'm going to quote the great Groucho Marx and say... The secret of life is honesty and fair dealing. And if you can fake that, you've got it made. So long, wrestling fans.